We're going to be looking at the book of Acts. I'm going to pray first before we uh, look at this, and I'll tell you a little bit about uh, what the book of Acts is, and I'll actually let Luke tell us a little bit about what the book of Acts is. He's the author of it, and then we'll jump in. So God, right now, we thank you for your great love. Uh, We come to you, God, and we just uh, pause, and we want to allow you just to do in us, do through us, do for us, God, everything we need. Uh, You are a giver of life, God, and we need life. Uh, You're a giver of order, and we find ourselves so oftentimes, God, in places of chaos. So, God, right now we just submit and we commit our hearts and our minds, our thoughts, our emotions, our affections uh, to you. God, reorient our lives. Bring healing, bring wholeness, bring life. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So... We finished up a series through looking at the person, the work of the Holy Spirit over the past several months, and now we're going to be moving into a brand new series looking at the book of Acts. So I'm going to jump right in. I'm going to let Luke begin to tell us a little bit about this because he does a pretty good job at introducing the book, so I figured he'll introduce it. I'll make a couple comments along the way and then uh, kind of get to sort of the meat of what we'll be taking a look at here this morning. So we'll look at around verses 1 through 8, and we'll spend the next uh, probably about a year or so in the book of Acts. Um, we will take some moments where we'll pause. We'll look at some other things throughout the year. For example, Christmas will be coming up. Not too far from now. It's kind of weird to think about that already. But uh, we'll be taking a break, look at Advent, some subject matter shift in looking at the subject in the person and the work of Jesus. Uh, same thing with Easter. We'll focus a little bit on the resurrection, the death, and so on and so forth. Uh, but for the most part, we will kind of just begin to make our way through this great book. Um, one other final thing to say about this book is that uh, this book is um, written as a storyline. So if you are uh, people that like good narrative, this is a great narrative, all right? The Bible is actually filled with all sorts of different types of genre of literature. So, for example, there are books that are described as wisdom literature. In other words, they put forth uh, good, smart, maybe even if you want to think of it this way, pithy ideas. I think of uh, the book of um, what's it, Proverbs, all right? Proverbs are, are these nice, pithy, filled with rich wisdom statements that come from Solomon. We call that wisdom literature. Um, there's prophetic literature. We look at uh, for example, like big prophets in terms of Jeremiah and major prophets, we would call them, and then minor prophets like Joel or the lesser-known prophets and whatnot. That's uh, typically identified as prophetic literature. And then there's narrative literature. We would look at like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Uh, then there's also, also literature that would be defined as didactic or teaching, in other words. And in the New Testament, you have teaching literature, for example, like First and Second Corinthians or Galatians. Um, these are examples of teaching. In other words, you read through those and you will get instruction on how to understand, to apply, to live out, to think upon the gospel, to understand how that works its way out in your life by way of implying forgiveness and forgiveness of sins, forgiving other people, so on and so forth. So you have all these different types of literature. And so the book of Acts is a literary genre that is more connected with the idea of narrative or Storyline. So that's what we'll be taking a look at. It's filled with great dramatic storyline. So hopefully a good story is hopefully rarely, if ever, boring. All right? And I think the book of Acts is really one of those examples of a book that's not boring. There's lots of great information going on. But what we want to do first is allow Luke to introduce us to this book to really kind of get the heartbeat behind or the pulse for what this book is all about. In other words, there is an arc, if you think of it this way, like a narrative arc as to where this story is taking us. It has a theme, there's a goal, there's an aim. And what we want to try to understand as we begin to go on the outset of reading this book is to really try to apprehend, if you would, um, what the narrative arc is that Luke has in mind. So let's let Luke uh, tell us a little bit about what he is writing and why he's writing it. So we'll start with verse 1, go down about verse 8. We'll begin to make some comments as I will along the way. So we'll start with this. One, verse one. In the first book, stop right there. Uh, this is, uh, Luke immediately tells us, this is like a 2.0, this is a sequel, all right? Some of you are like, well, ready to read through this. I'm like, stop, add three words into it. So Luke wrote a first book. It's called the book of Luke or the gospel of Luke. This is Luke's second part series, if you would, or sequel to the story that he began. All right, so you have the Gospel of Luke, which is sort of version 1.0. The book of Acts is sort of 2.0, or the sequel of the book that he started. Then he goes on to say he's writing to this person named O. Theophilus. Again, stop, all right? Theophilus, uh, two words, Theophileo, 
uh, theo meaning God, it's the Greek word for God. Phileo is the Greek word for love. So Theophilus is that which is or who which is loved by God. A lot of scholars and theologians and pastors have wrestled as to who is he writing to. There's no indication that this is actually written to a, another human being, though it could be um, in terms of an individual, uh, which has led a lot of scholars to believe that perhaps this is just sort of a title or a generic name which Luke actually gives to all to whom would be reading this book. So in other words, if you are a theophileo, if you are a lover of God, this book is written to you. So uh, you can think about that for a moment and ask yourself, are you a lover of God? Do you love God? If you do love God, this is your book. This is written to you to think about, to consider, to meditate, to ponder, to stand in awe. All of these types of affections and emotions that will be generated as we continue to pick up and read through this dramatic uh, storyline. Then Luke goes on and tells us that I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up, after which he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. All right, so again, another thing to consider here in verse 2, he says, uh, right, verse 1, he says, all that Jesus began to do and teach. So what's fascinating to me about this book is Luke is telling us that, you know, the Gospel of Luke, the first book that he'd written, is really just the account of all that Jesus began to do. Uh, the sequel to Luke's first book is really to continue the narrative, to continue the narrative arc that began with Jesus. Now what's Jesus continuing to do? So the book of Acts is about what Jesus is continuing to do, which is kind of a fascinating thought because in just a few verses, we're going to find that Jesus leaves, all right? He doesn't leave on a voyage or doesn't leave on a journey. Shockingly, Jesus actually leaves, takes a ride on a cloud out of this physical, tangible world in which we see. In other words, the theological term for this is that he is actually ascended into heaven. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. In other words, Jesus will actually be departing from the narrative as we've known him. In other words, in Luke 1.0, the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is in the thick of the narrative. The whole book is about King Jesus. It's about the miracles and the teachings and the ideas and the thoughts of Jesus and who Jesus is and what Jesus was saying and what Jesus did. But in the book of Luke, or in the book of Acts, I should say, Jesus is gone. He's not there. But Luke is going to tell us Jesus will continue to do his work. So the question naturally in our mind should be, how? How does Jesus, who's no longer in the storyline as a tangible human being that we saw in version 1.0, continue the work? The answer that Luke is going to give through the Holy Spirit, through the people, which it's kind of led to a question as to what do we properly call the name of this book? So some have thought, well, maybe the name of the book is the Acts of the Apostles. Some of your Bibles might actually label it as the Acts of the Apostles. I've chosen to actually label this series the Acts of the Holy Spirit, not because it doesn't have anything to do with the, Holy, uh, with the Apostles, because it has a lot to do with the Apostles and anybody who calls upon the name of Jesus, um, but it has to do with Jesus' people empowered by the Holy Spirit. So in other words, the force or agency behind the physical human element, the people, is the Holy Spirit. So I've chosen to kind of think of it as this book really is the acts of the Holy Spirit. God doing stuff in this world. And we'll talk a little bit more about what God is doing or what God has continued to do through uh, version 1.0. In other words, the story of Luke. Uh, in the gospel account, what is he continuing to do? And then he goes on to say, he presented himself, in verse 3, alive to all, uh, to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So one final thing I want to say about the fact that he describes this as what Jesus continued to do. That if you jump ahead and you look at the very last verse of the book of Acts, you realize that the story actually ends in a very... Not a very like, good type of a manner. In other words, it kind of drops off. It just ends with sort of uh, a, a cliffhanger where you're kind of left wondering what's going to happen next. And Luke ends the story, I think, purposefully like that. To just simply say, that's exactly the question I want you to ask. What's next? Because it kind of leaves you with this understanding that God's not done yet. God's still writing this book. God's still doing stuff in this world. He hasn't finished it. So in other words, if you think of it this way, if you are a follower of Jesus today, if your heart in any way, shape, or form has been turned on by God, 
No matter what type of degree, whether you are here this morning and you are absolutely on fire, if you would, think of it that way, for Jesus. You love God with all your heart. You're passionate about him. You tell people about Jesus. You read your Bible every day. You're super disciplined. You do all these things. You go to church. You help out. All those are things. Or if you're somebody that has like this flickering spark in your life where you're just like, I, I love God, but for whatever reason you feel it's, this little spark keeps getting stomped or snuffed out. I want you to think about it this way. At the end of the day, that little spark, no matter how full of a flame it is or no matter how small or barely struggling to keep alive, is evidence of the fact that God has continued his work all the way through to your life. There's life in you. There's a fire burning there. That fire was put there by God. Now, again, there may be, uh, they could take a whole other series that we can talk about how it gets snuffed out and how it gets pushed down and so on and so forth. But the point that I would make is, this, is that if there is a fire, if there is a little flame or a little spark, that is because of God's good work in your life. That's a miracle. That's what God has done. That's what God does. That is the continuation of this great book that started in the life of Jesus, went through the gospel or accounts of Jesus' life, through the book of Acts of the Apostles and the Holy Spirit, through the church, to this world, to 2015. That's what God's continuing to do. You're part of that story. In other words, you have been brought into the story, the narrative of God brought into. In other words, your life is no longer defined by the old dead-end narratives that lead to death and destruction and brokenness and hell and all these other things that you think about, but it's been restoried, if you would. I'm not even sure if that's a word, but restoried, or there can be make a synonymous idea between being restored, put back into the story of God, right? God basically commandeers your dead-end story of brokenness and destruction, defined by sin, defined by rebellion, defined by your defilement, and now redefines it by life, forgiveness, cleansing, purity, righteousness. It's a gift of God that God has brought you into. You've been brought into that. So think about the beauty of that. And that's what I think Luke wants us to understand, that God is still writing this great book. It goes on in verse uh, 3, he says... To them he presented himself alive after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. We'll actually come back to that phrase, kingdom of God, because that is sort of the center point or the pivot point of everything I want to talk about. Verse 4, he says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, as John baptized with water, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit on many days from now. He says in verse 6 and 7, he says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons of the Father that he has fixed for his, and by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea. So think about this as like telescoping uh, extensions of what he is beginning. So it begins in Jerusalem, goes into Judea. Then he says, this work will continue on into the region of Samaria and then end into the uttermost parts of the world. So if, you, if anything you hear right now, just think about this. What Luke is actually giving us, he's basically giving us an entire outline for the entire narrative arc we call the book of Acts. The entire book. So if you think of it this way, this story begins in Jerusalem begins to expand into Judea, which is sort of equivalent to the, uh, the county, if you would. So you got San Luis proper, then you got San Luis County, which is kind of this large, expansive region. So Judea is sort of this large, expansive region. <clears throat> and then you have Samaria, which is sort of the, uh, the no-go zone. So if you're a good Jew, all right, living kosher lives in the first century, the idea of actually anything really going into Samaria is actually repulsive. And I mentioned this a little bit last week. It may have been a little bit shocking for some of you. And the reason why it was so repulsive to the first century Jews and quite shocking for Jesus to even announce this because the simple answer is the first century disciples were all racist. They were just racist. They loved their nationality above and beyond all other nationalities. That's, by definition, what a racist is. And so the idea of doing and showing and sharing anything with these repulsive half-breeds called the Samaritans were shocking to them. So I would imagine when the disciples are hearing Jesus describe this, when Jesus is like, oh, by the way, my kingdom is going to go from Jerusalem. They're like, check, that's awesome. We love Jerusalem people. It's going to go into Judea. They're like, check, 
We love that because we love our region. We love our zone. We love our space. We love our people. And Jesus is like, it's going to go on into Samaria. And they're kind of like, wait, what? Did he just say Samaria? And to the innermost parts of the world, which, again, would imply by definition to the Gentiles. This is the repulsive race of people that Jews would have never associated with. So, sort of the book starts in Jerusalem, goes to Judea, then down to Samaria, and then actually ends and concludes, if you want to describe it as a conclusion, in the last book of Acts in Rome. It begins in Jerusalem, ends in Gentile territory. So, there you go. That's a little bit of the outline, the scope, the aim, the picture of what he's doing all with this pivot point on what we describe as the kingdom of God. So let's talk a little bit about this Christian movement because we know that what Luke's going to basically describe for us in sort of a historical fashion uh, that is basically this narrative um, radically changed the world. It radically changed the world. This is, it's in some ways, it's kind of an understatement, but it radically changed the world as we know it for good. Now, again, that's not to mean and not to say, not to imply that Christians also have had or shared a history with bad actions, all right? We can talk all we want about that. And a lot of times, uh, you don't need to go any further than just reading bad blogs that always love to point out the bad stuff that Christians do, all right? There's a lot of bad stuff. But the point that I'll make is this, is that Christianity started, when it started, it began to radically change and transform the world for good. And what I mean by that is people that were outcasted, people that were forsaken or forgotten were healed. Relationships that were once broken and irreparable were actually uh, brought back together again and sealed and healed. All of these things began to happen as the gospel began to spread from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the uttermost ends of the world. And any good historian who likes to grub around with the facts, has to deal with the reality of that. That is exactly what happened. It's an undeniable reality. So let's talk a little bit about the Christian movement. We'll look at three things. I'll wrap this up. One, we'll take a look at that this Christian movement is three things. And we'll take a look at kind of each little chunk of scripture that we read. So first of all, this Christian movement is actually poised within the context of the resurrection. It's poised within the context of the resurrection. It's really important. If you miss it, I'll reiterate. Here's what he says. Again, he describes it this way. He says, uh, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up, after which he had given these commands to the Holy Spirit and the apostles uh, whom he had chosen. Verse 3, he says, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. The Greek word that he uses there for many indisputable proofs, depending upon what translation you might have, is the Greek word tekmerion. Basically means, uh, it comes from another Greek word that basically describes if you were to go out and stake territory, you would put like a big sign in there with a little flag on it, right? It would basically designate a boundary marker. And so when someone would be asking the question, well, where does their boundary marker extend to? All you have to do is look at that boundary marker you'd realize, okay, that's where the extent of their property line extends to. It's, a, it's a in, uh, an irrefutable proof that that belongs to them. In the same way, what Luke is describing is that we know the story that we're communicating to you, the one that I'm about to unload to you over 20-plus chapters, uh, is based upon irrefutable proofs, tecmerion, facts, that actually happened. And he describes it in the context of Jesus suffering by implication, his death, and also by way of implication or definition, uh, clear indication of his resurrection. So Jesus is uh, suffering, death, and resurrection. And what Luke is basically saying, look, we know this happened. Everybody knows this happened. This is not something that's being debated uh, within the halls. People are not talking about this via the blog sphere. Did Jesus rise again from the dead, is Jesus really alive? People knew something happened. This is the thing you got to understand. They know that something happened. What exactly happened, whether or not people chose to believe that it actually happened, is a whole other realm of discussion. But the point is that what Luke is saying is that we know that we know that we know beyond questionable doubt that something happened in Jerusalem that had to do with Jesus when he suffered, died, and then ultimately rose again. So why is that so important? Well, it's important because we live in a culture 
in a lot of ways, it's constantly trying to debate, push down, cast doubt or question upon the historical reality of the Bible. It's in a lot of ways, because we live in sort of a postmodern uh, milieu or wor- world in which we live in, where the idea is, you know, the temptation could lead us to these conclusions that it's like, you know what, I don't know what they're talking about, and I realize that, you know, atheists are making their claims, and others are making their claims over here, and I have no idea whether or not the Bible is even to be trusted, and whether or not it can even be relied upon, and all of it really doesn't matter. What really matters is, do I feel Jesus? All right? Do I feel God? And so a lot of ways, it boils down to, in a lot of people's theological presuppositions, is it boils down to whether or not you feel God, whether or not you have a sense of God's nearness. And the problem with that is really everything. All right? it's, it's, everything's wrong with that. And here's why. Because it, on, on a personal level, at some point, what you feel will deny you, will betray you, will flee from you. In other words, you may have moments where you feel something so wonderful, so good. But at some point, you will go through moments which ancients have described as the dark night of the soul. If you've never been through that, it sounds as horrible as it sounds. All right? It is as horrible as it sounds. It is the dark night of the soul where you don't feel God's presence. In fact, you even feel times when you preach or you pray to God and all you hear is echoes. All right? Some of you know exactly what that's like. I've been through situations like that where I'm just like, God, I'm not even sure if you are even responding or hearing or answering. Do you even care? And if you build your Christianity on nothing more than a series of emotions or feelings, but not upon a historical reality, at some point when you lose sight or lose context or lose contact with those emotions, what's going to anchor you? What's going to sustain you? What will hold you? What will cradle you? What will give you buoyancy in those moments where you feel like you're sinking? And so really, what I want you to understand, and at the same time, let me add one other thing. There are many, many critics, more vocal than ever today, I would say within the past 10, 15 years, than ever before. And part of it has to do with the fact that we have this thing called the internet, where information gets to us instantaneously. And far more vocal uh, adversaries to Christianity, to Christian scholarship, are constantly and vocally trying to attack and destroy any viable reasons for any context of faith in the historical Jesus. So, for example, if you're a student, uh, let's say, for example, if you're a freshman, you need to really think this through because for some of you, there are uh, professors that actively want to eat you for lunch. I'm not kidding. I mean, the reality is there are some that defiantly want to attack any form of flimsy or broken or messed up or weak or shallow Christianity. And they will target you because in their minds, they're not necessarily trying to like build up your faith. They're trying to destroy your faith. They're trying to erode it. But that shouldn't frighten you because if your faith is in a historical reality and not just simply in an emotion, we fine. In other words, there are great ways by which we can reinforce our understanding of what happened 2,000 years ago. And that's what Luke's telling us, is that I'm telling you this story, this whole narrative I'm about to unpack for you, actually is built upon this foundation of something that happened, and you all know about it. So the question that some of you might naturally ask is, well, wait a minute, I, I wasn't there, I didn't see it, sometimes I don't really hear or feel God talking to me. How can I believe that this story is true? And this is where we come to the subject of eyewitnesses. The reality is, is that we have eyewitness accounts. These guys are reliable sources that have relayed to us information by which they were eyewitnesses of. So let me give you one final example of this, and I'll kind of move on and hopefully I'll make my point. But if you think of it this way, back in March 4th, uh, 1789, the Constitution in our country actually came into full force. This was after all sorts of different types of drafts were being done and being taken care of and modified and whatnot. But the reality is, we as Americans, whether or not you know it or not, we actually orient our lives according to this, this document. All right? How many of you have actually seen the document? Raise your hand. All right, like maybe half a dozen of you or a dozen or so. Something. Most of us have never seen this document. So if, if I were to be trying to battle against this, be like, how do you even know the document exists? How do you even know the American dream is even based in reality. This could all be fake and fabricated. But if you are a good historian, you know that it exists. You know that it was signed. 
You know that it's safely tucked away in the National Archives. You know that you can actually go visit it and check it out and see it and verify it. You know that you can actually read it and you can go online, of course, Google it and why not get information. But the point of the matter is, is that there was something that happened in our country that we orient our lives by. We live according to. We try as much as we can to, to, to embrace the reality of this thing we call the American Constitution. But most of us have never seen it. In a very similar way, that's kind of what the Gospels are like. Is that we were not there. We didn't see Jesus. Uh, we did not watch him rise again from the dead. But there are good eyewitnesses that were there. They penned the story for us. We call that, you know, the Gospels. We call that the story of Luke. We call it some of these other things. And they verify to us that this is exactly what happened. So the final thing I would just say is this. Is that if you have ever doubted or questioned whether or not Jesus can be trusted or the resurrection and whatnot can actually be verified or this was actually a historical thing, my encouragement to you would be please, please take some time and to feed your heart, your mind, and your emotions upon this historical reality. There's great books that I would highly recommend go checking out. First of which I would suggest more modern author. His name's Tim Keller. Uh, he's written a book called The Reason for God. Highly recommend that. If you've ever had any doubt or question or wondering, or if you've had a professor or a family member or a friend or somebody in your life who's like, no, Christianity is false. It's built upon false presuppositions and so on and so forth. I would suggest read that book. There's great literature that's available for you that will help you to combat false concepts. So Reason for God, Tim Keller. Second one, um, classic, C.S. Lewis, uh, Mere Christianity. Highly recommend that. I mean, just, um, just for anybody, read it. It's a great book. Anything C.S. Lewis, I would just say read it. Um, and then finally, one other book. It's kind of more theologically rich and super big. It's a book written by probably one of the most recognized, foremost leaders, uh, theologians on the subject. It's a guy by the name of N.T. Wright. He wrote a book on the resurrection. Um, almost all scholars across the board, no matter what type of theological background they come from, they would basically hail this as being the best, most definitive work on defending the historicity of the resurrection. So my point, again, and finally, moving on from this, is to simply say this. The Christian movement began by being poised within an actual historical event. It led to emotions, right? It led to a feeling the presence of God. So again, what I'm saying is that Yes, I believe God can and God does give great emotions and feelings. But first and foremost, it was anchored and tethered to this massive rock we would call the historical event that Jesus came, suffered, died, rose again. And this is what God brings us into. This is what God brought these people into. One final thing I'll just say on that. I already said, I was, said one final thing. Is really at the end of the day, this is the story that makes Christianity super, super unique. Because if you think of it this way, the stories outside of Christianity involve suffering and death. Like that is the storyline every single one of us find our lives in. All right? That's what defines a normal human being life is. I know it sounds so bleak and someone should write an indie song about it, but suffering and death is how your life is defined. Maybe punctuated by moments of joy and beauty. Would you agree with that? Like that's life. Suffering and death punctuated by moments of beauty and joy. The story of the gospel adds one element to that is absolutely beyond life transforming. It's the story of suffering, death, punctuated by moments of beauty and joy, plus hope of resurrection. How do we know that? Because Jesus rose again. And the entire, the entire New Testament basically says, because Christ rose again, you too will one day rise with him. He is the template of what God's rebuilding in this universe. Next thing to think about, is that this Christian movement um, is really also empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit. So you can describe and just say, well, it's amazing that these people all believe this event, and they went out and did all these things. But the reality is, is that I, I think it's built upon, we, we think of the success of the church being because they were part of and swept up in this movement, right? Uh, this actual historical fact. And as powerful as historical facts are, Historical facts, I don't think, always have this longevity sustain this major trajectory that Christianity had. So in other words, here's what I mean. Uh, Christianity, we've we got to understand, first of all, Christianity was not birthed or brought forth in an environment that was really welcoming. I think if we tend to think like, oh, Christianity came on the scene and people are like, we're so happy you guys are here. Uh, there's so many great religions in the world. We're so happy to welcome Christianity to this pantheon of world religions. 
exact, in fact, it's in the exact opposite. We're like, uh, you're claiming a religion that's foreign to us. We don't really like Jesus. Uh, we want to do to all of Jesus' followers the exact same thing we did to Jesus. So we're going to hunt you down. We're going to find you. We're going to torture you. We're going to kill you and your children. And that's exactly the environment Christianity was birthed into. So the question is, is how in the world did Christianity, born in an extremely hostile, uber-religious environment, break the orbit, get out of the orbit of this super strong religion and destruction? And the only answer I, I can say to that is this Holy Spirit came upon them and empowered them, changed them. I think of Peter, again, I'm not going to go into it too much right now. In fact, last week, if you weren't here, I would suggest highly uh, getting the message from last week. It's on our website. It's all, always for free. So just check it out, download it. But the point of the matter is, is that the Holy Spirit is the one that is described as God in spirit, God coming into the life of his people, giving them boldness, giving them power. And that's how you can look at the life of Peter. I mean, on one hand, you got Peter just shortly before Jesus was crucified. He's literally denying Christ. And uh, not just simply denying, but like swearing the fact to others, not like cursing, like saying the F word uh, in Hebrew, but he's swearing, meaning like, I swear to God on, my, on this oath that I do not know this Jesus. That's what it means to swear for Peter. And then just 40, 50 some odd days later, Peter's standing up in front of thousands of people preaching something that he was denying just weeks prior. How, how do you describe that? The Holy Spirit gave them boldness. The Holy Spirit is what empowered them, enabled them to be doing all the things that they did. So we see the Christian movement is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Um, thirdly, this Christian movement actually uh, promotes this kingdom, this kingdom of God by word and deed. And so the word-deed combination um, is, is, is purposeful. Think about it. It's not just preaching the gospel. It is that. Um, there's oftentimes Jesus describes, go preach the gospel. But we also see this combination of deed. In other words, acting the gospel. We see examples of this throughout the New Testament that, you know, if we say that we do something and yet by our actions we portray something else, then really we're just, we're just lying. We're not living it out. So this uh, combination of word, deed, needs to be something that we as Christians or a follower of Jesus need to really take to heart and think about and consider. But the Christian movement really promotes this concept of the kingdom of God. So, question that I want to end with is really understanding and asking this bigger thematic question, what is the kingdom of God? Like, what is the New Testament talking about when it describes the kingdom? So, for example, let's go back and take a look at verse 3 to get the context again. He says, but to them, he, Jesus, presented himself alive after suffering by many proofs appearing to them uh, during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So whatever this thing, the kingdom of God is, Jesus is talking about it. At the beginning of the book of Luke, actually, um, it describes Jesus coming on the scene. What's Jesus' message? It's the kingdom of God. Um, throughout the book of Acts, we're described, we're told that they're communicating the kingdom of God. Jesus gave these parables. They were actually called kingdom parables, or parables of the kingdom of God. So what in the world is the kingdom of God? In fact, if you look in the Old Testament, this phrase, technical phrase, kingdom of God, actually does not appear in the way that we would identify it in this way. But the kingdom of God is central to the message of Jesus. It's actually central to the Old Testament as well. But the point that I would make is that in the life of Jesus, it becomes fully embodied. That's what I mean. So the question that I really want to tackle now is, what is the kingdom of God? To answer that, we've got to first of all ask the question, like, what is not the kingdom of God? Because uh, the followers of Jesus, the early apostles, they had their own version of the kingdom of God. So this becomes really poignant for a lot of us. Because let me, let me put it this way. The apostles had misunderstandings, misconceptions about Jesus, and yet Jesus still loved them. All right? Does that define any of you guys? Has anybody here figured out the entirety of the Christian life? I didn't think so. point of the matter is, is that all of us have theological discrepancies. All of us have viewpoints that are short, that are failed, that are flawed. You guys follow what I'm saying? All of us have theological leanings to some degree, left, right, however, forward, backward, that are to some degree um, uh, uh, incomplete or in some ways even completely flawed. And yet Jesus still chooses to work with these guys, and he basically just directs them, guides them along. I love this about Jesus because there's this 
radical element of grace in which Jesus addresses these guys. So let's take a look at how they understood God's kingdom because actually it comes out in what they say and we'll understand a little bit about their limited perspective on God's kingdom. So what I wanted to be careful to describe is not that their perspective on God's kingdom was entirely wrong because it wasn't necessarily entirely wrong. It was incomplete. It was based upon uh, cultural, religious baggage that they imported. So let me put it this way. Every single one of you and me, when we read the Bible, we read the Bible from various cultural lenses. So if you've ever been around somebody where they're like, you know, I don't listen to Bible teachers. I just read the Bible for myself. Do you understand you don't exist? Every one of us have some cultural lens whereby we import ideas into reading the Bible. Every one of us. And the fact is, is we don't always see what those lenses are. We don't know what those lenses are. But what happens is in time, because God loves us and by grace he welcomes us and changes us and transforms us and reveals to us himself, in time we begin to see things more clearly, right? Which to some degree should cause us to have a little bit of pause about the type of arrogance we have towards others, all right? Um, If anything, it should show us that there may be areas and elements about my theological understanding that are completely incomplete at best and completely false at worst. Okay, you guys following? So let's look a little bit about the disciples' limited perspective of God's kingdom. It involved at least four things. One involved uh, kingdom timing. So the question they ask is, when will you, uh, when will the kingdom begin? So in their mind, again, it's pretty likely that the way that they're thinking about God's kingdom is that it's, gonna go, it's going to begin right now, which is not entirely wrong, because actually uh, it was going to begin right then. But their understanding of other elements of this kingdom were short-sighted or narrow or false or not accurate or not complete. So the question is kingdom timing. And this is a natural question. So, for example, if someone were to be a king in today's world today, um, their rule and reign is limited to time, right? Every good king, every good queen, every bad king, every bad queen um, has had been limited to time, right? Typically based upon how long they've lived or how long they've been in office before they've been executed or beheaded or whatever the case is. But the point of the matter is time is always a very important element when we're talking about kingdom. And so the question that they're asking is when will this kingdom begin? So kingdom time. The second uh, thing that they're looking at is the idea of kingdom action. And it's kind of the question of like, what will be the actions, the words, or the deeds that will actually define your kingdom? What will define it? So the question that the disciples ask is a very important one. They ask the question specifically, uh, Jesus, when will you restore the kingdom of Israel? When will you restore? So the word that they're thinking is restore. Now, again, the word restore in their mind, the definition they're thinking is loaded. All right? So the idea of restore that they're thinking is radically different than the idea of restore that Jesus is thinking. You guys following along so far? So in their mind, we've got to do a little bit of background in history. For the Jews, in Jesus' day, uh, there was a great period, you can call it, say, like the golden era of Israel's history. It was led by a king. Does anybody want to take a guess, radical guess, as to who the king was that led Israel into like kind of their golden era? Guesses? King David, you guys are so smart. Yes, King David. In fact, if you go to Israel today, um, it's hard to find, I mean, any type of venue of, that sells anything uh, is going to be named King David. In fact, I was, it was awesome. I was in Tel Aviv one time, and I saw a surf shop. It was called, like, King David Surf Shop. I'm like, this is awesome. <laughs> this is really cool. So everything's called King David. So the point of the matter is, is that King David is sort of embodied as this mythical figure. I mean, he was a realistic person. He lived at one point. But today, in today's world, they, the, the idea of David's rule and reign is kind of mythical, And for Jews throughout the ages, they've always had this hope that one day uh, God would restore the kingdom to the golden era of which when it was under King David. In fact, there were these promises and prophecies throughout the Old Testament that would basically say something along the lines that one day God will give a child or a son to King David and David's son will then uh, become this king and he will restore the kingdom to Israel. So for the Jews in Jesus' day, the word restore was actually filled with all sorts of baggage, or if you would, luggage or ideas or concepts that basically carry the connotation that as David made the kingdom uh, during the golden eras, filled with military might, so our kingdom will be filled with military might once David restores this, or the son of David will restore this. And as David made our kingdom filled with financial might and power and authority and 
greatness and wisdom. So one day God will restore our nation. In other words, if you can think of it this way, it was the rebirth of nationalism. National Israel will become this powerhouse on the world scheme again. You guys following along so far? So in their idea, they're asking this question, Jesus, when will you restore Israel to this great level of golden era style, King David style kingdom? You get this? So we know this to some degree. This is the angle which they're approaching because when Jesus was alive before he died, he was oftentimes talking to them about the things that he's about to do. He says things to them like, hey, the son of man, Jesus, I'm gonna go to the cross and I'm gonna die. And at some points, they would actually deny Jesus that. They're like, no, you can't die. You're, you're the Messiah, you're the king. And the other thing to think about is this, is that the name given to the offspring of David that will one day be this king that will reorder, reinstitute this golden era of Israel's great history was called the Messiah. The anointed one is what the word Messiah means, the king. It was another kind of a, a way of describing a second king, and a coming king. So Jesus comes on the scene, he asks his disciples, who do you guys think that I am? And all the disciples unanimously really kind of led by Peter are like, you're, you're the Messiah. You're the king. You're the coming one. You're the one that we've expected and we've hoped for. We've uh, heard the prophecies and we've held on to the prophecies that you would one day come again and restore our nation to its greatness, its former greatness that it once was. You guys following? And so they're asking the question, will you now, at this time, restore this kingdom. And the reason why, like I said earlier, is because when Jesus would oftentimes describe things like, I'm going to die, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to go to the cross, disciples would then begin to argue amongst themselves. And there are a couple different occasions where they begin to argue and bicker over who's going to be the greatest in God's kingdom. And what that meant to them was, who's going to be the cabinet members? Who's going to be the veep? Who's going to be the chief of staff? Who are going to be the people that are going to be in charge and in control alongside Jesus in this new restored kingdom. And they would fight, they'd argue. In fact, one of them, we're told, that actually they got their mom involved in. Mom's kind of like posturing with Jesus. Hey, Jesus, uh, here's some money, you know. Uh, here's a few denarii, you know. How about you make my two sons like your chief of staff? And Jesus is like, you don't get it, do you? The point of the matter is they did not understand. Their understanding of restoration was completely limited. Second thing, or third thing, I should say, is the kingdom reach. In other words, is the idea of how far will this kingdom extend? Borders. We're talking borders. How far? For the Jews, for Israel, for uh, the disciples, no doubt they're thinking from Dan to Beersheba, if you're familiar with the typical ancient borderlines. Like from Dan, which is the highest, most, most northern part, kind of uh, rubs alongside Sarah, to, to, uh, to Beersheba, which kind of rubs alongside uh, Egypt. So in their minds, they're thinking, oh man, great, our, our border lines are going to be reestablished. They're going to be this great national entity again. So kingdom reach, how far will God actually reach, God's kingdom reach? And then finally, kingdom people, who will actually be the kingdom people? Who will be those that are loyal subjects to this great king? And for every Jew that was in Jesus' little posse here, of course, in their mind, they're thinking, that's us. Like we are good, Torah-observant followers of Yeshua of God, uh, we are a kosher, we live our lives in a particular lifestyle way, we avoid certain Gentiles, and we never go down to cities like Samaria, and the point of the matter is, in their mind, they're thinking that God's grace is at some point going to be limited to this ethnic group called circumcised Jews, sons of Abraham, sons, daughters of Abraham. So again, involved kingdom timing, kingdom action, kingdom reach, kingdom people, but all of which were, for the most part, Short side. So final thing, clue on this, is really what is God's view? Oh, so here's the things, a few things to consider. One, um, some of this I get from or borrow from a theologian, a guy by the name of George Eldon Latt, and uh, he described a lot of this um, that I'm going to lay out, and uh, it's really helpful, I think. Um, he describes God's kingdom, really that involves at least these three things. I kind of add a couple of them myself. But um, one, it involves his rule, will, and reign. His rule, his will, his reign. So if you think of it this way, if you have space in your house, let's say, for example, you have a spot in your house, it's your room, or let's say, for example, you have a chair, right? if you're a dad, maybe you had a dad that had a chair. It's like his special chair. You knew it was off limits for you because it's equivalent to his throne. It's his space. It's his domain. It's his kingdom. You guys following? It's the spot from which dad governs the entire house, all right? You guys following? It's the spot from which dad rules. 
It's the spot from which dad's will is done. All right? It's the spot from which dad says, no, we're not watching Teletubbies. We are watching football. That's what we're watching. My will is going to be accomplished in this house because I got the controller. I, you know, I got the staff in my hand, the scepter, and I'm raising it right now. And my will is going to be done in this house. And right now, my will is going to be done in the form of football on the afternoon in my zone, in my chair. And the rain is the idea that he has the power to enforce it. So if you think of it that way, put it in the context of God. God is ruler over all things. God has a will, and God's will is at some point, going to be accomplished, and right now is being accomplished, God's reign, meaning his power, his authority, his ability to accomplish this stuff, is beginning to happen right now. Matthew 6.10 actually instructs us. Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the idea that uh, is basically being conveyed here, if you think of the word, your kingdom come, and then the next phrase, your will be done, there's sort of this parallelism going on between the word kingdom and the word will. If you, if you understand how Jesus is describing it, and the idea is, is that the kingdom is the space where God's will is being done. This is what's happening. This is what, what's described here. And Jesus is informing his followers, like when you pray, pray that God's will will be done. Where? In heaven? No, on earth as it is in heaven. That God's aim, God's will is to do something here now in this space that's broken and dysfunctional and fractured and filled with evil and wickedness. And part of us, we're the ones that are responsible for that. And what Jesus is teaching his disciples is that right now, God's kingdom is beginning to break forth, break in upon this broken space we call planet Earth. And Jesus teaches his disciples, pray. When you pray, pray that God's kingdom come. God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think, secondly, it also has to do with timing, both now and to come. If you're familiar with language that George Eldon Ladd described, he describes this as what's called big theological term. Uh, if you've never heard this before, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. It's called inaugurated uh, eschatology. The idea is that God has begun this kingdom now. And we know this because in the very next few verses, we won't actually get into it today, more so next week and throughout the rest, there is an event that actually happens that Jesus, we're told, is taken up in the clouds. We call that, theologically, the ascension. Jesus ascends to heaven. So the question is, like, like why oftentimes, and, I, and I'll be really honest with you, I, I'm guilty of actually somehow taking this massive action of Jesus rising into heaven on the clouds to simply reducing it to nothing more than a footnote in Christian history. And I have to apologize to you for that because that, that should never have been done by me or any other pastor or any other leader. The fact of the matter is the ascension of Jesus into heaven, Jesus leaving planet earth, going up in the clouds into heaven is one of the most momentous, powerful statements. It actually comes from the book of Daniel. I don't have time to look at the passage, but Daniel has this vision that one day God will establish his reign on this planet. And the way that will be is through this cloud. And here Luke is telling us Jesus is ascending into heaven on a cloud. The idea, the implication, if you want to think of it this way, Jesus is rising, ascending to the oval office of the universe to say, I'm king now. I rule over all now. But we would say this, he is reigning now but not entirely in its fullness in which we sense it here. That's why we're instructed to keep praying. Because the point of the matter is that there is another event that's described in the future that one day Jesus will come back. And this is why we would describe it this way, that God's kingdom is, in terms of timing is both now, on the one hand, and to come. So in other words, we live between the beginning of the God's, God's kingdom coming in, breaking in on this earth, and the fulfillment, the culmination, the climax, if you would, of that kingdom coming in. We live in the sort of this in-between time whereby we pray fervently, collectively, God, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want your reign to come, to break in, to break through. Um, I want you to think about this, because this is exactly what we hope for. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine a few weeks ago, and on a very practical level, we need to be people that observe and see moments when God breaks in God's kingdom breaks in and reorients things from brokenness into orderliness or when God reorients things from darkness into light, when God breaks through lies and replaces it with truth, 
when God breaks through fractured relationships and brings about healing, or when a marriage is on the verge of divorce and somehow that marriage is saved and there's a fire, a spark of love that gets back in there, or when a child who once hated their mom and dad at some point has his turnaround and wants to come back home. These are moments when God's kingdom breaks through. So the example is, I was talking to a friend of mine several weeks ago, and uh, he had this relationship with somebody that was kind of fractured and broken. The result of that was there's all the suspicion that he had about this person. It was, he was, it was affecting everything in his life. And everything he talked about with regard to this person was actually jaded and shaped by this distrust that he had for them. Okay, you guys following? So I, I, I asked him, I says, hey, um, what, what would you think if, and a lot of this was based upon an email that this person didn't respond to. And I said, what would you think about if you actually emailed this person back and just said, hey, listen, I sent you an email a few weeks ago and you hadn't responded back. And I'm, I would imagine, I said, give them the benefit of the doubt and just assume maybe he's really busy. And I said, you know, write that and just say, hey, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts because I care about our relationship and I care about, and I don't want it to be fractured and broken. And then the next morning, literally within eight to nine hours later, he sent me not only the email that he sent to this person, but he also sent me the reply from this person back to him. Like instantaneously, this person responded. And I remember talking with him the next day. I'm like, look, bro, check this out. Do you feel like there's just some level of restoration? He's like, yeah, like I feel like I, I, I trust this guy again. I feel like his explanation as to what I misunderstood has been made clear. I said, do you know what that is? That whole like little element of restoration that you just saw in that relationship, that was God's kingdom breaking in. I mean, do you realize how big that is? I mean, do you understand those are things that we should celebrate? They're as big as someone who's blind being able to see. They're as significant as somebody who has a broken arm being made whole. This is God from outside of this broken world we call earth, invading this earth, not with destruction or oppression, but with healing, forgiveness, and cleansing, and washing. This is God breaking in. And we live in that place. We're kingdom people, if you're a follower of Jesus. And finally, that God's kingdom involves growth and expansion. And the idea is that it just continues to grow. Jesus would tell these parables all the time about God's kingdom being like a tree or being like this. And the idea of growth, expansion, is slow growth. It's not this big boom of growth, but oftentimes slowly just moving forth, penetrating, permeating all society and culture. And the idea is that God's kingdom is going forth right now all around us. And this expansion involves both people. Now, again, the Jews... Uh, Jesus' followers in their minds are thinking, okay, this is great. Are you now going to restore the kingdom uh, uh, to Israel? In other words, in their mind, they're thinking limited about Jewish people. They're thinking Torah-observant, circumcised people. If you follow the arc of the book of Acts, you're going to realize it's not limited to Jewish people. It actually begins to expand into non-ethnic Jews or non-ethnic uh, Jewish, non-Jewish people into uncircumcised people, people that are straight up pagans, people that are straight up worshipers of Caesars and other foreign entities and deities and gods, but they are finding grace from God because God's kingdom is far bigger than just simply one national people group. And then it goes beyond to that into all place. So again, in their mind, they're thinking borderlines and there's a band, Dan to Beersheba, but God's saying, no, no, you don't get it. Um, again, Jesus... And he, as he responds to them, it actually doesn't answer their question. But we know if we follow kind of the narrative arc, we realize that Jesus' aim of bringing healing is not just simply to a little piece of territory we call Israel. I, I do think God has a specific plan for Israel. That's a whole other topic. But the point that I would make is this, is that God's aim of bringing healing into this world is not just simply limited to a certain space geographically. In fact, Paul tells us it's all creation. So the idea is that oftentimes the Jewish people, Jesus' followers and that initial core group of people, their limitations were limiting their ability to actually be able to see the vastness of God's kingdom. And Jesus is like, no, you don't understand. But here's what I will tell you. And Jesus finishes with this final thought and I'm close. He says, what I will tell you is go into Jerusalem and wait for the power of the Holy Spirit and he will make you to become witnesses. He will give you power. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria. Again, they're probably shocked by that. Like, Samaria, what are you talking about? We hate Samaritans. And the uttermost parts of the world, meaning like Gentile territory, meaning like where the bad guys live, the evil people, those that are engaged in orgies and all sorts of evil, wicked stuff that we would never even talk about around family dinner. Those people, Jesus like, just focus on who the Holy Spirit is and how he wants to invade your heart.
in closing. Question that we got to wrestle with. Is God's kingdom is breaking in. What's your posture before it? We live in a world that is constantly feeding us an alternative narrative saying, you don't need God. You can be your own king. You can be your own ruler. Or we live in a world in which oftentimes we subject and submit our hearts to all sorts of alternative rulers and all sorts of alternative things subjugate our hearts and our lives. And we're bound by these things. We become slaves to false ideas, false notions. We become slaves to these small ideas that destruct and destroy and break apart our lives and through us bring brokenness in the lives of other people. And what we have is a God that says, listen, I want to bring healing and wholeness. And I will do this. So I'm going to have the team come on up and I want to finish with a passage. It's in the book of Habakkuk. It's a little known prophet that just wrote three chapters. And in these three chapters, he basically, this is, you guys can come on up. He just describes basically this, imagining what it would look like when Yahweh became God. And it's what really all prophets do. They would always consider what would it look like when Yahweh becomes God. And oftentimes the prophets kind of envision what would it look like if God actually truly fully reigned over Israel. That's what they're always dreaming of. That's what they're always envisioning. That's what they're always sort of considering and thinking about. And what Habakkuk says is really fascinating. He says this in verse 14 of chapter 2. He says, For as the waters of the sea... Uh, filled the sea, the earth shall be filled with the awareness of the glory of God. So first of all, uh, God speaks to Habakkuk and says, listen, imagine this. As the earth is covered with waters, one day the entire planet will be submitted, brought into, baptized by this radiant beauty, glory of God. In other words, healing will flow. Healing will take over all these broken areas. He goes on to describe, verse 15, but again, because Habakkuk wrote in real time, he wrote in his world, he was a subject in a lot of ways of the current headlines of his day. Uh, He wasn't just simply dreaming these vast, wild dreams about some future state. He was also one that was firmly planted in the society in which he lived. Here's what he goes on to say. In the very next verse, he says, for what sorrows awaits those who make their neighbors get drunk? He says, who force them to drink alcohol so that they can laugh at their nakedness as they rape them is the implication. Verse 16, he says, but soon it will be your turn to be disgraced. Come, drink and be exposed. Drink from the cup of the Lord's judgment and all your glory will be turned to shame. Think about that phrase in a moment. All their glory will be turned to shame. That's what Habakkuk is saying. Verse 17, he says, but those of, there are those of you who cut down the forests of Lebanon. Now you go and now you will be cut down. The implication is not just simply the deforestation, the brokenness of the environment, though it may also imply that. But the idea is that there are rich people literally cutting down these cedars of Lebanon, these massive trees to build massive houses. The idea is that the rich keep getting richer, the poor keep getting more poor and oppressed. And Habakkuk is like, God, when will you intervene? Our world is broken. The, the, the rich are oppressing the poor. The poor are just broken and constantly being broken and destroyed and subjugated. He says, you destroy the, they even destroy the wild out animals. Uh, and then he goes on and says, you commit this murder throughout the countryside and now your towns are filled with violence. He's like, look, you guys commit these murders out in these areas where you don't think you're ever going to be seen. But instead what's happened is you've imported violence into your neighborhoods. You can't get away from it. I bring this up because the reality is, is what Habakkuk points to could literally read like headlines from today's news. We live in that same world, but Habakkuk goes on and he says in his closing words, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth stand silent before him. He says, I've heard All that was said about you, Lord, I am filled with awe by your amazing works. In this time of our deep sorrow and need, God, help us. Habakkuk ends with this little prayer and it keeps going on, but God, will you help us? And the reality is we have this, we know the full story because the story doesn't end at Habakkuk. It goes on into the New Testament and we see the story of a God that actually does respond. And it responds in a way that was totally unexpected. He responds by actually coming into this world. The author, 
becomes a part of his own story, shockingly. And the whole glory turned to shame. Habakkuk had no idea of understanding to what length God would actually go to rescue his people because that by definition is exactly what Christ did. The glory of Christ on the cross throughout his life, really, but especially on the cross, literally was turned to shame. He bore our shame. And the implication is that God did this to which Luke just simply identifies this is the suffering of God. We know he suffered. We know he died. We know he rose again. We're telling you about this resurrected king that comes, bears our shame, lifts it from us, and instead clothes us with, our, with his glory. Clothes us with radiance, with beauty we don't deserve. This is the message Luke is saying. We preach, we proclaim, we demonstrate, we invite you to come be a part of. That's what I'm going to invite you to be part of. Why don't we stand and let's respond. We have communion. Uh, It's a way of reminding yourself that Jesus gave his body to us. He says, this is my body given for you. We're going to sing. Uh, If you're here and you just need prayer for anything that's going on in your life, we're going to have some people over off by the cross available to pray. If you just want to get away from the group of people maybe that you're sitting with, not that they're bad people, kind of sounds pretty weird. Um, but if you just want to get on your face before God, we got some rugs in the front. Just come sit down before God. Or get on your knees and, and let the posture of your body be one which represents your heart. Let's respond to this king rightly. If he really is king, and if he's not just simply an accessory or a good lecture that we find great tidbits of information, but if he is really a king, the question that I pose to you is, what would be the rightful response to this king of all kings who holds all things in his hands that makes these radical promises and then backs them with radical historical facts? What should be the response of our hearts? Let's give him the right response to do, Tim. Let's worship.